Hello and welcome to episode number 219 of the Armin Show podcast, available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, the website, other locations where you can download it. Now, on this episode, I have, what a wonderful guest, I took great notes on this book because I like the value of it and the organization behind it, Professor Matthew O. Jackson. He is the William D. Eberly Professor of Economics at Stanford University. He has a PhD from Stanford that he got in 1988. Also part of the Santa Fe Institute that I've mentioned before. And we'll be discussing his book, The Human Network, How Your Social Position Determines Your Powers, Beliefs, and Behaviors. Welcome to the show. Thank, thanks, Armin. Thanks a lot for having me here. This is great. Now, um, I always like to check before discussing the book how you got to where you are. So how did you end up uh, teaching economics going into the field of economics and going to Stanford? Uh, well, uh, I, I was always interested in mathematics, and I uh, really liked to work with models, and, and I wanted something that had application and, and could have some importance in terms of, of changing people's lives, I guess. Mm-hmm. And that, that's sort of what led me to economics rather than just pure math. I enjoy math a lot, and it, it, it's a very useful tool. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I sort of wanted to put it to work a bit. Right. That makes sense. And then uh, what led you to Stanford specifically as opposed to maybe some other institutions, and how has your experience been there? Uh, you know, I, I had an undergraduate advisor um, who uh, who recommended Stanford for me, mm-hmm. and yeah, he was uh, – he understood that I, it would be a good fit for me. I, I think at the time when I went there um, as a graduate student, Stanford was really excelling in in terms of um, being a center for game theory and and doing sort of cutting edge research in that area, and and it was sort of ideal for for my interests. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I mentioned that the Santa Fe Institute that you are a member of, a few individuals I read from or spoken to went there. I like it because it combines different fields. Uh, what connected you with that? Um, yeah, I, I guess I, I sort of knew of it a little bit through Ken Arrow, um, who was an amazing economist and mm-hmm. and a very broad thinker. And he was one of the early, um, I guess, really important people at, at the Santa Fe Institute in terms of shaping its structure and and it's just an amazing place in terms of how it brings people together across disciplines. And I think, you know, increasingly the world reaches across disciplines and universities are a little bit slower to get there in terms of, you know, having these old structures that are built from centuries ago. And, uh, mm-hmm. and a place like the Santa Fe Institute's really wonderful to go and think and talk to people. That makes sense. Yes, I noticed that you mentioned that in the book and I have also noticed that where there's some areas of society where, information moves quickly and progress happens fast and then there's some areas where you could wait a decade and almost nothing would change yeah exactly (laughs) yeah different different regions Um, one thing i noticed also so this is a cool thing in your acknowledgement that uh, what led to this book is that you took the uh, introductory parts or the fun descriptions from chapters in your book i think social and economic networks and uh, your wife had said, you should make a book about this. Is that right? 
That's exactly right. Yeah. So you know, she was helping me do a lot of proofreading, and the the other book is is meant for advanced graduate students and researchers. So it's a bit more technical. But mm-hmm. at the beginning of each chapter, I had a description for sort of what we learn from the chapters about human behaviors, and and she said, "Wow, I love this stuff. You know, you should actually write a book where where you could communicate this to to the more general public." And so that was the the impetus for this. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That's kind of cool to have somebody that. Uh, we'll give you the insights that maybe you didn't see that, and then it reaches out to a different demographic of sorts. Yeah. That's some cool stuff. Now, one thing that's really cool is you have reached more than 1 million students through your online courses. How has that gone, and what has been the main goal or things you have figured out from that? Uh, yeah, it was sort of you know, it was fun. It was a fun accident. Uh, I, I was talking to UF Shom in, I guess, 2011, probably, mm-hmm. 2000, around then, and this was just at the point in time where online courses were beginning to appear. And he's, he was teaching game theory. I was teaching game theory. And he thought, well, why don't we team up and, and do an online course on this? And I had no idea what it meant mm-hmm. at the time. I didn't, I, you know, I had no clue. And, and I thought, well, it'd be pretty easy. You know, just have somebody come in and, and, you know, film some lectures and then we'll post them online. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I didn't have any idea of what went into it. So, you know, and actually structuring the course for an online community, you do it differently than just teaching in a classroom. And you don't want just people looking at you. You have to structure videos in a completely different way. And it, it was, I learned an enormous amount from doing it. It was a lot more work than, than I expected um, in terms of structuring the courses. But then it was also a lot more rewarding in terms of, I had no idea how many people were out there and were interested in learning about networks, and le- interested in learning about game theory and, and, uh, it just the the you know making things accessible to people that wouldn't otherwise have them that was incredibly rewarding and it, and it, it continues to be it, it's sort of amazing how how many people have have the opportunity to, to get things online that they wouldn't have had otherwise that's true it's a very valuable resource that we take as an example but then 30 years ago it was not there and it was just you just check on some encyclopedia or something yeah yeah i mean you know you get really moving emails from people and um i remember getting a uh early on in, in 2012 getting an email from a, a woman um from a, a very religious family in the middle east saying that that you know she had would have no ability to get this kind of education otherwise and and was you know pr- profoundly thanking us and you know just you just realize that that that's something that you know, you're making a difference in somebody's life that, and that, that's really rewarding. Mm-hmm. Now, in before I describe some of the material from the chapters, which I took great notes, I liked the sometimes when I take uh, notes on a book, I, which I do in Evernote, I will have the chapters, but then also the subheadings. And yours was very organized into parts, so it made it easy to do. Some books don't really have uh, subheadings that way. And so it's more difficult to take notes in that category. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what would what would you say uh, would be a couple of the main themes you are looking to present through the book? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the 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 book, you know, part of it is to say that that we're we're embedded in these networks. Mm-hmm. Uh, they make a difference in our lives, and and the sort of two threads that that really move through the book are one that that our networks actually have 
strong identifiable features. Mm-hmm. So there's certain shapes and, and structures to them that are, are ones we can recognize and and are pretty robust human behavior footprints. And then the other is that those footprints and the, the structures that we're embedded in actually you know, shape the way that we behave, what we know, um, how we know it, what, what we believe in, in ways that are much stronger than we might anticipate. And, and they sort of bias us in ways that we don't necessarily anticipate. And, and so, you know, it's not sort of a, a one message book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of books out there that try and, you know, really have one right. central message and then come at it from all different angles. And this is instead to say, look, you know, the, these things are things we understand and they actually have many implications but ones that that are systematic and and we can attack from from our understanding from science. Mm-hmm. I noticed that by the way. That's a I never thought about it that way. But that's a big thing for me uh, as far as books that I enjoy is what you just described. Because the ones that are about one thing and then just keep going at it after yeah. about I mean they're great books, but after about like forty fifty pages something like that, you feel like you've read the book and now you're just repeating the the point of the book so that it's not it's not as appealing and it wouldn't be good for taking notes as well because at some point you're like um it's a little redundant but yes that is a yeah it's sort of interesting because it's it's a trade-off in the sense that you know like on a a a short five-minute discussion of something right it's easy if you've got one theme then you, you go at that but when when the book has lots of different points to it and the nuances it's it's a little harder to tell somebody. Oh yeah, here here's exactly what you're going to learn. Right. Um, you're going to learn a lot. <laughs> right. And it's not just one one sentence. That's a good yeah. point. That might be the difference between like a sort of a sensationalism or a, a showpiece heading, and then something of abstract thought, and you have to process it for a bit. Yeah. Preferences. Now, in uh, the second chapter, you talk about a lot about centrality, different kinds of centrality, eigenvector. And how, uh, if you have a group, the uh, your connectedness to it as your as being a central figure can influence uh, if you have an impact. If you're connected to the other individuals, if they're only connected through you, and then mm-hmm. you showed the uh, the family, the Medici family, and how they were able to maintain their presence because of their uh, connectedness or favors given to other people. Uh, what caused you to look at that family? Was it like their powerfulness at that time? And what comes to mind as far as centrality? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, centrality was actually part of the reason I got interested in networks to begin with was just a question I was talking over at lunch with a colleague, um, Asher Walensky, many years ago. And mm-hmm. we were just talking about, you know, what does it mean to be powerful or influential and central? And and how does one end up there? You know, when you look at at economics you you end up seeing inequality in terms of outcomes and in a lot of settings and some people end up being more powerful or more important in terms of influencing other people Mm -hmm. and and so that was sort of a a question that had been looming for a long time and and the you know networks allow you to to sort of pinpoint that and there's different ways in which people as as you're pointing out there's there's different ways that people can be important and and so one is just, you know, having lots and lots of friends or lots of reach. And, and these are the kinds of people that you see, for instance, you know, like a, a, a Katy Perry or a Taylor Swift mm-hmm. or people that have enormous numbers of followers. And, you know, they can tweet something and then the next day 
um, you know, a lot of people will wake up and, and see that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's one type of reach. That's very different from, you know, being an essential connector um, as, as the Medici were in, in terms of, uh, of, of, of actually being an important political, central political family that were able to sort of consolidate power at a time when there was a lot of families, you know, struggling in, in, in Florence in the 15th century. It was actually an oligarchy. There were a bunch of very wealthy and, and powerful families, and they were vying for power. And the Medici were up against the Albizzi and Strozzi. It was a fascinating setting. But the, the Medici, through marriages and business dealings, had sort of put themselves more or less at the center of a star. So, you know, was, they were sort of like an early version of a godfather where they were mm-hmm. connecting a bunch of other families and, and able to coordinate those families and, and sort of rise to power because of that. And so it's a, it's a really nice illustration of, a, you know, of, of how important a, a position as a connector can be. And, that, and that, that's different from just being able to reach lots of people. It wasn't so much that they could reach lots of people. It was that they were in a, in a specific kind of position mm-hmm. as a, a sort of a central and essential connector between other families that, that made them the connector. Um, and, and that, that sort of enabled them to rise to power. Mm-hmm. Yes. They, that's a key thing about the position I noticed is that they would have to, there were people that were maybe islands on their own and they would, communicate through them and so therefore uh they needed them and so that gave them elevated status in those individuals eyes that they wouldn't have had if they were all connected to each other exactly exactly mm-hmm. so the fact that, that these other families w- all went through the medici rather than directly to each other mm-hmm. was sort of what gave the medici the power right precisely yeah as i was uh, reading that part because i uh, especially some years ago but for a long time i've talked to all kinds of strangers in public and met a lot of people and connected them in some forms i kind of looked at some of the connecting i've done or which parts i did more of like the bridging but maybe not so much of um, like connecting them to one another as much as recently so it was nice to see how i've shifted in those kinds of uh, linkages over the years so it was nice yeah 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 um now uh forward it talks about how Material is transferred from one another, diffusion and contagion, and then diseases. And then this also similar to the social connection. I noticed there's like a expansion and consolidation kind of thing where um, it goes in one direction or it uh, expands such that everybody suddenly uh, gets a vaccine and then suddenly uh, everybody thinks we're safe. And so... The numbers reduce and there's like a cycle oh, yeah. yeah yeah i mean and that, that's actually one of the hardest parts it's interesting you know when you look at diseases there's only one that's really been eradicated over the years and and that that took a, an enormous amount of efforts by the world health organization to do it because it's exactly as you're saying once once people you know st- vaccinate well and a disease starts to disappear then people become more relaxed about it and and it's not till it reappears that then people start worrying about it again. And so you get the, you can get cycles and, and to some extent you're seeing that with, with measles these days. Um, there's lots going on in terms of the networks with measles, but you know, once, once it's sort of, you don't see the diseases anymore, then people say, well, you know, maybe I, my kid doesn't need it. Maybe there's a little danger here and people start worrying and they don't get the vaccine. And then, mm-hmm. um, then the, the rates drop and it's, it's actually, you know, sort of, a, a tipping point where you go back and forth through these um, situations and 
it, it takes a lot of effort um, because the the vaccination decisions by one individual end up affecting a lot of other people, right? That's mm-hmm. that's sort of the critical part about it is it's not just protecting that person, but if that person doesn't get the disease, they also can't spread it. And so, you know, there's right. this extra multiplier and 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 that means that the whole system can cycle in, in a much more pronounced fashion than if it was just uh, each person only affecting themselves. Right. I noticed this. I often, when I do things or look at how people are connecting, I take I try to take into account all the biases and or multipliers. And so the regular group dynamics don't really flow as much through me as they do through maybe other individuals uh, because I don't think they're taking into account those details. They just go with what is. And so uh, yeah, yeah. if there was more critical thought involved then, or just yeah, thought, I- then it would limit those. And I think that, that that you're pointing at one of the most important aspects of networks is that most of what we're doing, uh, what our choices, you know, the reason networks are interesting is because, you know, information transmits to us. So, so if I learn how to program something in a new language, I, I new, learn about a new network software or, you know, I go to a new conference and learn about some new ideas, it's not only beneficial to me, but then I can bring it back and, and help my colleagues out. And most mm-hmm. people... You know, as you're pointing out, it, there's that that externality that that's sort of beneficial to a bunch of other people. And mm-hmm. if I don't take that into account when making these decisions, then I, I'm acting suboptimally. So, and and the more that we're sort of aware that everything we do ends up, you know, going through us to other people, mm-hmm. that 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 can change the way we behave and and actually make us, uh, you know, more public-minded in some ways. Right. The, uh, these kinds of information also help me because sometimes. Uh, maybe a decade ago or different times in my existence, I've done things that they don't look the most efficient that day, but I know in an extended period they make way more sense, but then maybe that doesn't translate to a lot of the audience, but that's okay because different uh, view of time perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Which is pretty cool. Now, you then talked about the financial networks, which is a big deal. I I feel like it's a bit more... Uh, managed now every time there's a damage and then there's control and then there is less damage the next time around such that maybe today we would have less likelihood of a housing issue but at that time uh, certain protections were not put into place Um, what should people know about financial contagions and uh, how they cascade yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think one thing to say is if if you look over time, uh, our world's becoming more connected, and so obviously globalization is something that's that's quite real. And when you look at the numbers, it's it's pretty amazing in terms of how much more financial integration there is around the world mm-hmm. today. When you look at, at investment from foreign sources, it it's you know three to four times higher now than it was in the 1980s. Um, and then if you go back to the, you know, fifties or something, it's, you know, orders of magnitude higher. So it's just, you know, our, our world is, is much more integrated. There's a lot more investment. There's companies that are working across borders. And at the same time, the, you know, when you look at the amount of capital that's concentrated in a few large institutions, the financial institutions are becoming bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is that there's, you know, a few institutions that can make a big difference in the world. 
you know, the 10 largest banks in the world now who account for something like 30 to 40% of the capital. Um, I mean, an enormous amounts of, of money concentrated in, in uh, a, a few very large institutions. Mm-hmm. And that, that means that, you know, if one of them makes really poor decisions, that can end up cascading to other ones. And we saw that in the 2007 and eight financial crisis, mm-hmm. which actually then, you know, had worldwide implications. Right. And as you're pointing out, I think people are more aware of it now. Um, it, it, and the awareness is, is sort of interesting because at, at the same time as we're becoming more aware of the fact that, uh, you know, uh, uh, if we had a, a default on Italian debt or, um, you know, the housing bubble in, in uh, uh, one country bursts, um, you know, that can end up having implications in a lot of other places. So mm-hmm. we're more aware of that. It's it's not necessarily clear that the regulation has gotten um, better or tighter. I mm-hmm. think most central banks now are increasingly aware and, and working on um, having network measures of, of a lot of what's going on. And I've been talking to people in central banks actually around the world and 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 they're much more aware of these things and, and are, are doing more sophisticated analyses of this. But at the same time, they don't necessarily have the regulations in place that they need to. So it's it's not easy to go tell a bank, look, you're you're way too exposed to this, and and uh, your decisions could affect a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. So again, it's this issue that you know one bank's decisions end up having implications for the rest of the economy, and and that bank is acting in its own interest. It's not necessarily acting in the rest of the world's economy's interest, mm-hmm. and and that problem still exists, and and it's one that's uh, probably as large as it's ever been. Uh, I think you know it's it's nice that that people are aware of it. It's 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 not necessarily true that the mm-hmm. regulations that we have in place are are appropriate to deal with it. Right, that makes sense. One thing I like the the picture you had the link between the banks where there was the four core and then the let's say ten fifteen there were the outer core and then like sixty three total where how yeah. those main four are like so relevant that if they have issues then they'll transfer instantly. And then the other thing that you just made me think of is i i noticed that a lot i look at uh you can't see what what the things that are in front of you now as opposed to maybe a thousand years ago it's harder to see directly the like this store is not there because amazon outdid that or this person is here because uh their business got outdone by a tech startup you can't see it as directly as long ago you'd be like oh okay that person killed that bear and ate that Mm-hmm. It was more direct. We're more disconnected, and then uh, that makes sense. That now we don't know if a property near us was bought by some investment group in Vietnam or some who knows, right? So there's yeah, a lot yeah. of linkage. Yeah. I mean, the world is it's much more interconnected in the sense that there's large institutions and and money moves around very quickly. And uh, I think part of the difficulty is, it, especially for regulators, is it's hard to know where all the connections are and, and who has exposure. You know, the, they have some idea of, of where the money move is moving. But a lot of times in accounting details, you don't have to list precisely who you're doing all your business with. You just have to list what kind of businesses you're doing and, you know, what you bought, not not necessarily all the details of who you bought it from and, and what kind of contract you have and what kind of exposure you have. And mm-hmm. these things all matter. The more details that are accum- accumulated uh, allow for more of these 
results that show things in a numerical way that at least I resonate with. I know some people, they're not really as inclined, but I like to, the numbers behind things make sense to me. Yeah. It's yeah. a nice feature. In later discussion, you had mentioned, you talked about a lot of the um, separations between uh, like networks that were, let's say, white or black uh, students or later on the political parties. And it was nice to see how the linkages, they really show what the case is that you don't usually see in that form. So that's a nice feature. Mm-hmm. And how people identify mostly with similar folks uh, for efficiency reasons and it's uh, less risky and they get along more with that type. One thing I noticed was in you had mentioned people reaching across groups can be seen as traitors or with suspicion, which uh, I often do that where I'm reaching out to people I'm not connected with or different groups and there is that kind of response um what why might that be seeing that way? sure yeah i mean you know i think um what what you're sort of mentioning is is one of the central features of networks which is that that people tend to associate mostly with people who are similar to themselves like on age and and um religion education um you know income all, all kinds of different uh dimensions and and that produces strong patterns where you get splits in the network and and that happens you know whether you're looking at a high school or whether you're looking within a company or whether whether you're looking just in a community and um you know things are geographically segregated and and these patterns mean that people are mostly interacting with other people who are similar which has a lot of implications for you know jobs and inequality and information all sorts of things mm-hmm. and uh, the question that you're asking about you know reaching out so you know, there's to some extent there's reasons both structural. Mm-hmm. You know, um, obviously, if if you're in a company, you're going to end up working mostly with people who are doing the same kind of job. So the salespeople talk to other salespeople, and the uh, um, engineers talk to other engineers, and so forth. So you know, there's going to be some natural structuring that pushes people that way, and people that have the same religious beliefs, you know, want to live near a church that that they can go to, and things like that. So there's going to be all kinds of natural reasons for it. And you know, if you're a new parent, you want to talk to other new parents about kids. And so there's efficiency gains to these things. But at the same time, that, that produces a, a lot of, of uh, limitations in terms of how, how well information travels through the network and, and what people are aware of and what they learn. And as you're pointing out, then, you know, if you're a person who tends to reach out across groups, mm-hmm. That's great because it can enlighten you and you can learn new things and, and you know, understand uh, yourself better and, and all sorts of things. But at the same time, um, you know, people are often wary of why is this person reaching out across groups because, you know, normally this person should be talking to their own type mm-hmm. and why are they reaching out to me? And uh, and it's unusual and, and, you know, sometimes especially when groups are in conflict with each other, then it can be thought of as suspicious. And right. so, you know, there's lots of reasons that it's not an easy thing to do. And especially, you know, if you, yeah, if you I go to a conference and everybody's talking to their friends and their friends tend to be people they've seen before. And if you're from a completely different area, <laughs> it's not easy just to sort of break into the conversation and say, hey, you know, talk to me. I'm I'm somebody different. Right. Uh, it's funny. That one's funny to me because I have actually done pretty much that. And it's one of my favorite things. I like to join in where I had nothing to do with the scenario, but I like to connect and sort of break through context, if you will. Yeah. So, that's a different category, but it makes sense because for efficiency, normally there's a lot of smoothness with 
working with people who are doing what you're doing along the lines, thinking the way you're thinking, it just makes things happen quickly. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, one thing you had brought up later, which I have noticed because I've done uh, tutoring and then in different areas, one, some well off, some not well off. Uh, you mentioned like if you just, um, it's not just what is given, but actually the mindset that you grow up in, what you think you are valued that I can see in the kids from one area versus another, the self-confidence, it's completely different. And that doesn't really transfer if you give a, let's say a lower tax rate or some, uh, monetary amount, it doesn't right, right. cover that element. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like one study I talk about is a, a, a study that's had a lot of impact, which is this uh, moving to opportunity study mm-hmm. where they gave uh, vouchers to different families mm-hmm. and it would pay for rent and you could use it to move from your community. So so what they did is they, they broke, uh, they had 4,500 families, they broke them into three groups. One group they gave vouchers that would pay for the rent as long as you move to a wealthier neighborhood. So mm-hmm. they they were targeting basically poor families in the bottom part of the income distribution. And then another group they gave vouchers and they said, "Look, you can use this. You can pay for your rent. Doesn't matter where you live." And then a third group they didn't give any vouchers. And then they, you know, what you could do is um, what people have done is then trace the outcome of of families that moved and see how they compared to the families that didn't move. And basically, if you take like an eight-year-old kid and you take him from the poorer neighborhood and you move him into the wealthier neighborhood, um, that gives them a higher chance of going to college, uh, a lower chance of ever going to prison, um, lower chance of you know being a teen pregnancy. Uh, in terms of lifetime earnings, an eight-year-old, it, it's um, an expected value of about $300,000 in lifetime earnings. It's an enormous number. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you move them at 18, it doesn't make much of a difference. And sort of, you know, by the time they're 18, they already have their connections. They've already, you know, mm-hmm. chosen a lot of their path. So, but young kids, it makes a huge difference. And then you realize, you know, it's it's actually a, a lot of what's going on has to do with the peers they're surrounded with and, and what those people are doing and what their aspirations are and, and what their choices are and what information they have. And that's not something that's easy to change, right? You can't just sort of socially engineer things where we we, we move everybody around in the world, <laughs> right? Uh, right. It, it's it's sort of a, a deeper problem, and and so I think it's really interesting now because there's a lot of focus on on redistribution policies in terms of um, addressing inequality, which are things like you're mentioning. Okay, let's put in universal basic income, give people access to health care. We can put in new taxes. Mm-hmm. But these things are basically addressing the symptoms of right. the problem, right? They're they're not really changing the basic structure that's leading to this. And I think long term we have to also think about how how do we not just treat the symptoms, but how, how do we you know improve the lot for the people who are sort of stuck at the bottom? So, um, yeah, how, how do you actually get them to to have opportunities for kids born into poverty? Um, that that's a harder problem and and you know there's ways to do it but it's it's not easy and it's not just giving uh, money to the family it's it's helping get information to them and getting mentoring and tutoring and other kinds of things to the to the people and helping you know improving access to education at an early age uh, all sorts of things that that are, are more expensive and, and more difficult to do mm-hmm. one thing I noticed about that actual specific program that I tuned in on is the people that uh, they just said, oh, okay, I'll take the money 
and uh, pay for just what I'm doing without actually moving to a better area. And then I identify with that because I don't uh, want to ever be in that category where I have a short-sighted view and I'm like, oh, this is a nice little deal, but maybe there's something bigger uh, that takes a little more effort and I can use this opportunity to do. So that's a key element there. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's not, yeah, it's as you're pointing out, you know, it takes effort and and it's always easy to say, oh, yeah, I'll do it set in the future. But for now, let's just pay rent. And, you know, it's hard. You got a lot to do. And, right. you know, people are struggling. and they have, it's, it's not easy to uproot. Um, mm-hmm. Now, uh, you talked about crowd dynamics afterwards. And one thing I noticed here, uh, you talked about prediction markets. I have had, uh, do you know uh, Dr. Robin Hansen? Uh, yes. This is wonderful. And so I had talked with him on a prior episode. Episode 202, I like to link sometimes to previous ones. And uh, he did a lot for prediction market. So when I was reading this part, I thought a lot about that and uh, how people's predictions can result in uh, good estimates for what something is without even knowing what the thing was. That's a nice feature. Is it a great way to do decision-making to pool people's thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so so part of the, you know, the... the um what I talk about in the book is, as you're pointing out, if you get people together and you can get them on a prediction market or you can get some way of, of aggregating their information, people actually have an incredibly accurate information often, you know, better than than other sources and, and quite elaborate ways of trying to collect the information. Uh, so collectively, we're very smart. Uh, the difficulty is that when we're in our own network, we're not you know, doing prediction markets or something. So, you know, if, if, if an individual is trying to decide, okay, is there climate change or is it, is it wise to vaccinate my kids or something, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're not looking at the prediction markets necessarily. They're, they're hearing things through all kinds of filters. They're hearing things mostly from other people who are their friends that are, that are similar to themselves. They're, they're seeing it through media, but generally media that are the ones that they pay attention to and the ones that are using algorithms to feed them the things that they want to see. And, you know, so they're not getting this unbiased, broader view of things. And, and so networks, that's the point where, where this sort of segregation of the homophily structures, these, you know, people only interacting with people who are similar to themselves that has a lot of limits on sort of how aggregating, how well we aggregate. So as you're pointing out, like things like prediction markets can be great, but every day we're not, you know, we're we're instead in, embedded in these highly segregated and and structured networks, and that leads to very different beliefs than we would see if we could all pool our information. Mm-hmm. Much of this, as I was, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, reading through it, I think about myself and like countering biases. There's a quote you said: "People who have more friends end up with their opinions being averaged by more people." So I. Uh, always focus on undoing that or not letting that hit my actual opinions. It's not so average, but that I guess again takes more thought than just letting it happen on autopilot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think one, you know, one thing that, that as I've been studying networks more and more, I, I do this is some of the same things you're just mentioning, which is, mm-hmm. you know, I, I pay attention not only to you know who i'm hearing stuff from and make sure i'm hearing things from a variety of sources mm-hmm. but uh, also try and track down you know if i if somebody tells me something I'll, I'll ask them a little more about where did you hear that from or how did you come to know that 
and it's interesting because you know we, we're there's a something which is called correlation neglect, which means you know suppose that that five or six of my friends come up and tell me that um, they've heard that this new movie that's just out is great and we should, you should go see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I sort of the temptation as a human is normally we count you know, and the more people tell me something, the more I begin to believe it. Mm-hmm. But it could be that all these people read the same review. Right? <laughs> Right, so if if I ask them, you know, where did you hear that, and then they say, oh, this review, and then then I realize I'm not getting five pieces of information; I'm actually getting one piece of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, that's the kind of bias that we we're always susceptible to, and we we don't realize that we're hearing lots of echoes and that things are coming in 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 these narrower ways. And once we realize that, we can do a li- just a little bit of of you know poking around can can make us much better informed. Right, I noticed that when talked about the news as well that. The news comes in and it might have these echo effects. And then the, the thing that always comes to mind is the more self-reflection or thought of what's happening would undo most of these issues, but uh, that requires more energy and then you'd have to process everything you're looking at and there's a lot going on at the same time. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and also that impact happens in uh, herd effects or uh, like a bank run long ago or how people, they see a... A place full of people and then oh okay this must be the good place and so there's less thought going on so i guess the message is to have a sense of the uh biases and to uh take things into account from your own thought pattern yeah yeah exactly the, the more we understand how these systems work the more we can can sort of counteract them in our everyday lives and then also you know design policies to overcome them more generally uh, which is is a, a harder, <laughs> right? A tr- trickier. Now, in closing, I have two questions. I always like to check: is one is uh, what are some of your upcoming goals for the rest of 2019? Oh wow! Um, you know, I, uh, I I'm in, in, involved in some really fun projects right now, and and. You know, just seeing those to fruition, I think, is is one main thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're we're learning more about how people make decisions of whether to go to college and and how they're how that's dependent on their social networks and sort of you know trying to understand how that plays out. That's that's one major thing. Mm-hmm. And I think more generally, uh, you know, I, um, writing this book has been very liberating in the sense that right. I, I realized you know sort of how how important it is to communicate this to more people. And, and so, you know, that, that, that really um, helping people understand a lot of the biases that are producing a lot of the inequality and the polarization we're seeing in the modern world. Uh, I, I think that's an important thing to work on. That's true. I want to mention to the listeners, this book did just come out maybe a month ago and is uh, recent from 2019. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, my last question would be, what is, uh, if you had a message to tell all the people of the earth uh, related to what you would want them to know um, or something you'd tell them to educate them, what might that message be? I, I guess it's, you know, to think deeply about their own circumstances and, mm-hmm. and how, you know, where they sit in society and, and also where other people sit and and to try to think not only about how they can improve their lives, but how they can improve that of others. And, you know, I think it's it's something that that's we're, we're so aware of it in some sense. You know, you know, we're we're bombarded now by social media. We know we're in Facebook and LinkedIn and Pinterest and, you know, Twitter. <laughs> right. we, we, we're, we're, now it's a, it's obviously a network society. And 
just understanding how those things work and, and being more aware of, of what it does to our own lives and, and how we can make other people's lives better. I think that's, that's something that uh, every, we can all work on pretty easily. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. This is wonderful. I want to thank you for having been on this episode discussing your book, your message, what we can take away from it from an economics background and mathematics. And glad to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Armin. It's been great. Wonderful. And we are out.